0: Here's roughly what I want to do tonight. I want to cover some recent and impending developments, uh, and impending is important that we understand that not everything that I'm going to be talking about tonight is already here. I'll try to make that clear as we go along. Along the way, while I'm developing that uh, quick summary, uh, we'll uh, offer a bit of an assessment and critique of the arguments against these technologies. Uh, and then finally, uh, moving along toward the conclusion tonight, uh, suggestions for spiritual and moral vision for living with these technologies. Because my underlying thesis is that one way or another, given enough time, enough scientific advance, I mean, you, you pick the framework. Are we talking five years? Probably not. Ten years? Fifteen? Twenty? Thirty? Fifty? A hundred? A hundred and fifty? Two hundred? I mean, you, you pick the time frame. Inevitably, I think, most everything that we talk about tonight that is still in the future will come to pass. Surely not as we project it tonight, surely in different ways, but uh, it's important to project uh, as much as we can what we think that future is going to look like. Uh, but again, the, the underlying assumption is that this future, one way or another, is inevitable. And the question is not, uh, do you like it or not, or if you don't like it, how can you stop it? The question is, how can you help, how can we work together to help create the values and the sensitivity and the human depth that is required when you put such powerful tools in human hands? And so I invite you to think with me along those lines. These are the recent and impending developments that we want to look at. Uh, human reproductive cloning, not yet um, available, so we think, probably not. Uh, non-reproductive cloning yes that is already here although still in the very uh, early stage pre-implantation genetic diagnosis um, possibly not familiar uh, uh, to some of you but it's a very important uh, technology that is already here although not too widespread yet then moving on finally to human germline modification uh, which uh, goes by the the title designer babies and hence the title of the talk tonight And again a background assumption that I want to make is that taken together, technologies of this sort, and there are others that could be on the list, but for the sake of expediency, I'm limiting to these four, technologies of this sort taken together will probably converge in ways in the future that we cannot see now, along with other technologies that we probably can't even predict at the moment, and that together they constitute what I'm terming technologies of human transformation, or human biological and genetic transformation. The next five, three to five years, I think, really is uh, a unique moment in human history because I think the coming age of human biomedical transformation is already close enough on the horizon that we could begin to see clearly what's coming, but it's still far enough out that we can begin to think about, uh, think about thinking about it, think about what to do about it, think about preparing ourselves to live in that age. So let's start with uh, reproductive cloning. Cloning with the idea of producing, well, maybe not a human baby, but a cat, let's say, for instance. Uh, This is CC. CC as in copycat. Or CC as in carbon copy. Very cute, right? Uh, Who can say no to CC? Any cat lovers? Um, I'm not sure I would put up enough money to clone a cat, but I'm sure that there are people who would. And pay attention to animal cloning, particularly pet cloning, because someday somebody's going to say, well, you let cat lovers do it, you let people who grieve over CeCe clone, you mean to tell me you'll let them do it, you won't let me, a grieving parent, use the same technology to bring back the child I've just lost? Here's uh, CeCe with CeCe's mothers, Um, well, is that exactly right? Uh, the, the, the larger cat on the right here is the surrogate mother. The one on the left, what is that exactly? Is that Cece's mother or is it Cece's twin sister? Uh, that's, that's the original from which Cece is taken. Uh, I mean, that's the whole point about cloning, right? It, it does confuse relationships, <laughs> All right? Uh, and it also doesn't give you a carbon copy. I mean, if you look at Cece, she's marked a little bit different from the cat that's on the left. Uh, Will pet owners be disappointed? Will parents of the future who try human cloning, and I think in time somebody will, uh, will parents of the future be likewise disappointed? We'll wait and see. Uh, Five little pigs, cloned. And then of course the queen of clones, the matriarch of maternal, uh, of of, uh, mammalian mimicry, uh, Dolly. So, There is a big leap technologically, but a tiny leap psychologically in the public view between Dolly and human reproductive cloning. Big leap technically. Uh, The purpose though, in the view of some, particularly the advocates, of course, is the obvious, and that is to create a baby using the nuclear DNA of someone else, whether that of a famous person, a superstar athlete, a super uh, model, how about a super saint? Have you ever heard anybody saying, well, I really would like to clone <laughs> Mother Teresa. Yeah. I've never heard that. Um, or maybe a lost pregnancy. Uh, and, and how would we as a society say no to the latter kinds of things? And if we said no to grieving parents, could we say no to people who want to clone uh, a supermodel or a superathlete? It's generally regarded as Unsafe. In fact, there's been quite a lot of uh, work in uh, uh, public policy uh, uh, deliberations uh, fueled by scientists who are experts in this field in particular. Uh, problems especially of an epigenetic sort. How do you uh, assure yourself that the, cloned, uh, the clone, uh, with, with, a, with a nuclear DNA transferred from another organism, has the DNA properly programmed to start life all over again? And one of the great things to worry about is that somebody might figure out a way to clone and bring it to a live birth and think, oh, we have succeeded only to find that the epigenetic uh, 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 programming, switching, basically switching off or suppressing the expression of DNA, hasn't been properly attended to because nobody knows how to properly attend to it. So you have a live birth with all kinds of subsequent developmental problems that only show up uh, uh, much later on. That's part of the reason why uh, it's regarded as unsafe. Not that you might not produce the live birth, but that you might produce That you might succeed in the live birth, but produce all kinds of subsequent problems. Nevertheless, in spite of that almost uh, complete consensus among scientists in the field, cloning is advocated by a few, um, and it remains not illegal in the United States. It's illegal in some states, but not in the United States. And it's generally believed that it might begin uh, possibly within the next decade. Uh, there are scientists, I think, as everybody knows, uh, scientists very much in quotes at this point, who um, routinely get before the media and promise you that uh, that somebody's already pregnant with a clone. Um, somehow it never quite uh, goes beyond that, but it could. Moral arguments against cloning, I think, fall along these lines that, first of all, the safety burden might never be met, and that that's... Um, you know, that, that's one that's going to be debated as we go forward in time. What exactly would you have to achieve in advance of making it permissible? Uh, that no one knows exactly, but it may turn out that the safety burden can never be met. Uh, that cloning does not address any medical problem. Uh, why would you want to clone? Uh, it doesn't address any medical problem. Well, you might imagine an argument being brought that it, that it could, particularly problems of, uh, of uh, infertility, but even there, uh, there are probably other ways to address those problems. Uh, that it might confuse parent-child relationships, which, as most everybody knows, are challenging under, uh, under any circumstance, particularly if, if, if the parent is the source of the donor cell and creates a child who is, uh, in many respects, an identical twin. What on earth is that relationship going to look like? Uh, I mean, you can only imagine the sort of adolescent difficulties that you might get into uh, later in life. And it brings into existence, I think this is probably the most um, fully reflective uh, argument against it. It brings into existence a life using nuclear DNA that is fully determined by choice. You create a life saying, I'm going to use this DNA, which, you know, here it is. Uh, And and no other technology uh, existing at the moment allows you to do that. Fully determined by choice, and which may be chosen based on its previous uh, phenotypic expression. Uh, That's technical language simply to say... Depending on who is the donor cell, who who provides the donor cell, you've had a chance to look at what that DNA achieved once already in life. And you might say, oh, I'm going to clone a great musician, and my child will become a great musician. So you're choosing the DNA based on your assumption that that's the DNA that, in its previous expression, uh, produced a great musician. Are you going to get a great musician? Eh, pretty iffy. Uh, if you clone a supermodel, you probably get somebody who's pretty good looking. If you clone an athlete, a super athlete, you probably will get somebody who has athletic ability. Uh, clone a musician, I think you'd start to go downhill in terms of the reliability of your predictions. Uh, nonetheless, uh, what would it be like to be that child and to say, I was brought into existence in order to be X, Y, or Z? And so from the vantage point of the child, one, again, could only worry. I think these arguments actually do stack up to some pretty effective reasons not to proceed with reproductive cloning. Um, and my guess is that reproductive cloning will never become widespread, uh, that it will be practiced maybe by a few people, but not, uh, not, it's, not, it's not really the thing that we want to focus on tonight because, again, I don't think it'll become terribly widespread. Well cloning though isn't just for reproductive purposes, it's also used for so-called therapeutic or non-reproductive uh, purposes. And in particular, it's interesting right now to use it as as uh, ancillary to the process of, of uh, drawing upon human embryonic stem cells, producing embryonic stem cells that are a perfect match for, the, for a patient. Imagine you're a patient with a disease that might be treated someday by embryonic stem cells. One of the problems is that your body would reject those cells uh, quite likely uh, if they were implanted. solution, possibly, is to create an embryo just for you, an embryo that is genetically identical, at least in the uh, uh, nuclear DNA, and harvest uh, the cells that become the embryonic stem cells from the embryo Uh, that is cloned into existence just for you. Allow it to develop about uh, five days, removes the cells from the inner cell mass, and culture those uh, embryonic stem cells. Then steer them toward the right sort of development, let's say you're a Parkinson's uh, uh, patient, steer them so that they become the right sort of neurons that would take up the function of of cells affected by Parkinson's and produce uh, uh, dopamine in the brain, and then implant them once they're ready and if all goes well, theoretically at least, no tissue rejection. All sounds um, promising, but a ter- terribly uh, complicated uh, procedure for getting there. Uh, so um, uh, I- interesting as to whether that will proceed or not. Here's what it looks like already. This was published uh, 1st of December of last year, uh, simultaneously, well, the the technical literature was the Journal of Regenerative Medicine, but a more popular version in Scientific American, and you can readily download the uh, full text of uh, of a lot of this from Scientific American uh, website. Uh, This uh, picture that you see is a representation of the uh, uh, supposedly the first cloned human embryo. They were unable to get it anywhere close to the point they could derive embryonic stem cells, but the idea was at least it was a first step in that direction. What makes this interesting is that this was done in a private lab, private funding. They didn't need to publish. In fact, they were criticized uh, for publishing without much scientific result. I'm actually glad they did because how else do you know what's going on in a private lab? There's no government review. There's no panel that they had to go before that was uh, publicly uh, 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 responsible, at at least. Um, Again, it's a good thing they published, but you could rest assured there are other companies, or perhaps this company, uh, Advanced Cell Technologies, uh, that are continuing to do this work, and uh, you don't have any idea what's going on. I I think that's a problem that uh, the American public is uh, basically shut out of the opportunity to review this research as it goes forward. Possible benefits, though, of therapeutic or non-reproductive cloning. It may advance this general field of embryonic stem cells and may, in fact, make it possible to proceed with the field without even using embryos uh, immediately, I mean, in each case in the future. It may bring about treatment for diseases ranging from Parkinson's to diabetes to stroke to spinal cord injury. You've all seen, um, for instance, Christopher Reeve or Michael J. Fox advocating the use of this uh, uh, line of research and removing um, uh, public uh, uh, barriers to the research. By the way, uh, we can only speculate what the the last election uh, a week ago will mean for the future of this research, uh, I, I really don't know whether the, the shift in the uh, uh, control in the Senate will mean uh, likelihood for a uh, comprehensive ban of this research. If it's banned in the U.S., it, of course, will go elsewhere. It won't stop the research, but it will uh, further distance our role as Americans in uh, paying, paying, uh, having some role to play in the um, uh, uh, oversight of the field. Some estimates suggest that as many as 3,000 Americans die each day of diseases that may someday be treated by some form of stem cell therapy. Uh, It's a very high number, and I don't really imagine that uh, there'll be 3,000 patients at some point in the future who will be wheeled in and treated with uh, this technology. But that's the kind of number, and you see how that number is particularly, uh, perhaps calculated almost, to uh, crank up the heat on the politicians. Uh, I mean, you see why they hate this issue. On the one hand, vote for stem cell research, embryo research, and you're accused of killing embryos which for a sizable uh, percentage of your constituents are little people. Uh, on the other hand, don't vote for it, and you're consigning the equivalent number of Americans who were killed in the terrorist attacks to not being treated and dying, in fact, of diseases that might someday be treated by this technology. Uh, it's a tough time to be a politician, uh, quite, uh, quite uh, obviously. Uh, th- 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 3,000 being treated. Again, that's a very high number, but based on uh, preclinical work, particularly with rats and mice, uh, this field is really very promising. And uh, we may, in fact, see numbers like that in the future. Uh, Spinal cord, uh, most any uh, uh, brain uh, injury or brain uh, damaging disease, uh, other forms of disease, uh, can be uh, treated in rodents. In fact, uh, some people suggest that, uh, you know, this this is not a particularly good time to be a human being, but it's a great time to be a rodent. Uh, Possible future benefits and concerns. Uh, new field of regenerative medicine. Yeah, that sounds pretty grandiose. Um, it may be possible in the future to regenerate parts of the body, including the brain. In fact, that's exactly what's being speculated uh, here with this field. It may be possible to extend the human lifespan. Not just average life expectancy, but the lifespan itself, especially if stem cells are genetically modified. Uh, In other words, like you, except better, and cells go back into your body, take up the function of damaged cells, and have some enhancement on their way in that makes them better than the cells that uh, were produced in your body uh, through ordinary developmental processes. So this leads to huge concerns for demographic shifts, and what does it mean to have a long life? What does one live for uh, in one's seventies, and eighties, and nineties, and Past a hundred, and a hundred and ten, a hundred and twenty. Uh, if, in fact, we are able to extend lifespan like that, what? Is the value of it? And you've all seen charts like this. I mean, already, without this technology, uh, <laughs> that purple line is going up pretty fast. The a number of uh, Americans over 65 going up by three, three and a half fold uh, over the next 50 years. Already, we've got some profound questions about how to fund the care of people that well along into retirement. So, do we really want this kind of technology that seems to make matters worse? At the very least, we need to have some problem solving. Moving on now next to uh, pre-implantation diagnosis. Uh, This is a procedure that is based on in vitro fertilization. It's used to avoid genetic disease, uh, particularly in couples that have a known uh, uh, risk. Maybe they've already had a child with a uh, severe genetic uh, problem. Uh, Embryos are tested before implantation. They're conceived in vitro Uh, usually multiple embryos, let's say eight embryos at one time, those embryos are allowed to divide uh, over about a a, a one to two day period. Uh, They're allowed to divide before implantation Uh, and they are analyzed by the testing of one cell. Here's a picture of the process. The pipette on your left, that large uh, blunt uh, instrument on the left, is holding the embryo into place. The tiny uh, glass instrument on the right is creating a hole in the the, um, uh, embryo and removing one cell, and that can be done Uh, without damaging the embryo, and at least that's the assumption at this point, there's no evidence that it damages the embryo, one cell is removed and it is rushed through amplification and genetic testing, and let's say you're looking for, if you're concerned about a couple that is at risk for cystic fibrosis, you test for that, probably test for some other things as well, um, and implant those embryos, probably two at at a time, that are clear of the disease. Key points on this. It's already underway, but not very widely yet. It was developed in the U.K. about ten years ago and is catching on across the United States. I don't know if it's available in San Diego. I'm sh- sure it would guess it's available at least in Los Angeles, but major metropolitan areas uh, ha- have the technology available, usually as a uh, advanced level uh, opportunity associated with a, with a um, medical genetics uh, program. Uh, It's a well accepted part of genetic services, Uh, I mean any couple that goes through the the difficulty of a genetically affected pregnancy, uh, let's say a birth and maybe buried the child, um, how does, how do you, how do you proceed? Um, Do you not conceive again? Do you conceive and take your chances? Or do you conceive in vitro and test and use the technology? Most people who've looked at it, not everyone, of course, but most people who've looked at it have said, well, um it's, it's, it's not a uh, panacea by any stretch, but it does seem to be better than some of the alternatives. The uh, question, of course, is whether this is a bridging technology leading us toward human germline modification. Classic definition of human germline modification is something like intended genetic modification that affects all the cells of the body, including the so-called germ cells that are available to the next generation. How would you go about it if you wanted to do germline modification? There are various strategies that have been uh, suggested, and uh, some of them aim at modifying the existing DNA that is in, um, I- in the cells that uh, become the embryo or in the embryo itself. Small stretches, particularly if you wanted to avoid uh, small mutations of, a, of a, maybe a single-base pair uh, couple of bases uh, in order to avoid some uh, uh, specific genetic diseases. Or you could insert new DNA. Uh, That is fraught with difficulty. Uh, It's hard to insert very much, it's hard to get it to the right spot, it's hard to switch off the DNA that's already there. Uh, I mean the the technical difficulties here are, are considerable. Another proposal again, full of conceptual difficulty but intriguing nonetheless, is to create an artificial chromosome that contains perhaps many genes. Here's what uh, this looks like. This was published in 1997. The artificial is that little green guy there in the middle uh, next to uh, a representation of uh, ordinary human chromosomes. The idea is that uh, possibly Uh, scientists will figure out how to build on this kind of work and to construct an artificial chromosome that uh, could uh, be then used to uh, insert many genes. Think of the artificial chromosome, I mean the metaphor has been suggested, think of it as a cassette or maybe a CD, for instance, in which you download information in the form of DNA sequence information, but you, you, you put that information, you burn that information into the cassette, this, this tiny artificial chromosome, well, you really can put a whole lot in there. Uh, I mean, many genes, potentially. Uh, in the proposals, of course, that are being floated using this, you'd start simple, but uh, uh, the idea is you could advance as the technology becomes more reliable and as, uh, as, as problems are are understood and avoided. Uh, you could insert s- switching uh, regulatory sequences that might be tripped in various ways so that inserted genes could be switched on and off at will, Perhaps. A big problem, of course, comes with sexual reproduction. Uh, As most of you would know, uh, chromosome abnormalities uh, create enormous difficulties uh, when we're talking about human uh, reproduction. I mean, mean, the least difficult being Down syndrome. Uh, Do you really want uh, artificial chromosomes added and people engaging in sexual reproduction? The answer is obviously no. How do you solve it? Well, you consign anyone born in the future with an artificial chromosome to assisted reproduction. Is that a problem? Well, not according at least to Gregory Stock because, okay, say, say 20 years from now, 30 years from now maybe, uh, we conceive a child in vitro with an artificial chromosome. Alright, we have consigned that child to reproducing through artificial in- insemination, somehow removing the artificial chromosome that was added, But uh, that's not a disadvantage, according to Stock, because you would want to remove the artificial chromosome circa uh, the year 2030 or so. And, you know, after all, by now it's the year 2050, 2060, let's say, and artificial chromosome technology should have progressed dramatically. And anybody conceiving a child, a human being, in 2060 surely is going to want to have the best artificial chromosome for that period. So you want to pull out the old version and upgrade to the new. Uh, it's beginning to sound a lot like computers, right? And, and most of us are fed up with this. Every time you get a new computer, you, I mean, Bill Gates um, uh, wins. Interesting conceptual question, though, is if you were to do it that way, if you were to remove an artificial chromosome, assuming, again, that you could, are we still anymore talking germline? And the whole idea of germline, uh, at least originally as it was floated, was that it uh, affects the cells, uh, all the cells, uh, that are transmitted to future generations. Well, if if you insert an artificial chromosome and then remove it, it's not transferred to future generations. And poof, up goes at least some of the argument that has been raised by bioethics. What are you doing? Uh, doing technology now that's going to affect generations one, two, three generations out, ten generations out, a thousand generations out. You have no right to do that. Well, if you do it with the artificial chromosomes, theoretically at least, as, as Stock advocates it and some others, uh, you wouldn't be committed to uh, altering the, the, the DNA of future generations. But uh, technically challenging, uh, absolutely to put it mildly. Again, this is not just around the corner. Foreseeable, imaginable, but not uh, here yet. Again, I do think the technical challenges, uh, one way or another, probably will be overcome in time, that it's probably inevitable, and so we're back to the question of whether this is desirable. What medical benefits, and particularly we will begun to want to ask ourselves, what non-medical benefits? I mean, it's not likely we'll want to use this, this technology, particularly artificial chromosomes, to treat sim- simple, uh, straightforward Mendelian diseases we will probably want to use it to uh, enhance traits of various sorts, and so the, you know, the big word, enhancement, suddenly gets in front of us. Probably we will use it at first to improve resistance to disease. And people will say, oh, that's great, isn't it? Wouldn't you like to conceive a child who has a higher-than-normal resistance to cancer? I mean, after all, every parent is obliged to give children a non-natural or a heightened resistance to polio, for instance, as well as other diseases. None of us is born naturally with a resistance to many of the d- diseases. The way we get the resistance is to enhance our immune system by vaccines. And that's not only acceptable, it's mandated. Well, suppose you could heighten resistance to uh, other diseases that are particularly difficult to deal with. Uh, again, imagine that you could do it. Would you? And would you feel obliged to do it? Cancer resistance, though, still kind of blurs the line here about uh, being medically beneficial. In fact, I mean, one one would clearly see how it might be. But what if you were to enhance other kinds of traits? And you can see how people in the future might imagine that they could begin to enhance other kinds of traits. Here are some arguments, though, against human germline modification. Some would suggest, particularly our European friends would suggest, that it's an insult to human dignity and to human rights, and one hears often this expression. Expression that every human being has the right to be born with a genome unaffected by technology. Uh, I'm not quite sure where this right is written down. Uh, it, I find it just less intuitive uh... to americans than it is to europeans but this this is enshrined in law in some european countries that you have such a right uh... be interesting to see if anyone wants to advocate that right later i've never found it to be particularly advocated by americans Uh, unforeseen consequences many generations in the future well that could be but again if you use the artificial chromosome uh... approach that might be uh... taken off the table as an objection Another objection is, well, doing this, doesn't it, isn't there something awful about assuming this much power? Aren't we, aren't we playing God? Aren't we doing something that is just, you know, off the, off the charts in terms of human limits? Are we, in other words, about to transgress fundamental human limits as creatures over against a transcendent creator? By the way, I hear this argument being advanced both by theists and non-theists. It doesn't seem to matter, but it it, it does point, I think, to a deep uh, anxiety. It's not exactly a new question. Uh, Go back to 1970 and you have this rhetorically powerful, but somewhat dated wording, men ought not to play God before they have learned to be men, and after they have learned to be men, they will not play God. In other words, grow up, and if you grow up, uh, you won't be tempted to play uh, around with human nature, because you'll see that human nature is fine the way it is. Uh, Just live it to its fullest intent. Uh, Paul Ramsey, Fabricated Man, 1970, Uh, I actually like this better. This, This goes back about 2,500 or so years. Woe to you, this is from the prophet Isaiah, woe to you who strive with your maker, earthen vessels to the potter. Does the clay say to the one who fashions it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles, or no resistance to cancer, or, you know, whatever genetic defect we imagine. Woe to anyone who says to a father, what kind of a child are you capable of having? You need help. Or to a woman, let's test your pregnancy. With what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and its Maker, will you question me about my children or command me concerning the work of my hands? I, after all, made the earth and created humankind, tiny beings on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and give me a break, I command the whole thing. Counter-argument, of course, to that particular sentiment. Uh, By the way, religious people can't simply shrug that off and pretend that isn't there, but there's a serious counter-argument that is offered. And it is that it's our religious duty to use our intelligence. I mean, the same creator uh, that we shouldn't complain against is the one who gives us intelligence and instructs us not just to use it for compassion, for empathy, for being with those who are sick, but trying to do something to relieve their sickness, uh, you certainly see that in the uh, 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 the Western traditions, the Abrahamic traditions, uh, absolutely in uh, in Judaism, and uh, and and the point couldn't be any more dramatic in Christianity, with a story after story after story of Jesus engaging in healing. I mean, to put it mildly, healing is a divinely sanctioned activity, and so uh, to quote Alan Verhey. Uh, a a Christian theologian. What does it mean to cast ourselves playfully in the role of God the healer? It means that we should promote life and its flourishing, not death or human suffering. Therefore, genetic therapy, like other therapeutic interventions which aim at health, may be celebrated. We must play God, he says, but do so as God plays God. God is God and not us, so God sets up the rules of the game. Uh, God has called us to follow where God leads, not to wander off in our own flights of technological fancy, to imitate God's works and to serve God's cause. So if we are to play God as God plays God, Verhey argues, then we will work for a society where human beings, each of them, even the least of them, is treated as worthy of God. God's care and affection. Strong social justice motif emerging, as you see here, and absolutely as it should. There is, though, a special argument that is offered against these technologies, and again, this might be particularly persuasive to some of you in the room. The philosophical version, in other words, the one without explicit religious language, is that any action that treats the embryo as a means and not an end violates its dignity. permutation on the Kantian argument uh, but extending it to the embryo as worthy of protection. Uh, It's not clear to me how a philosopher makes that extension but that's, I think, widely held uh, in, in, in some places at least. Here's the religious version which seems to me to make a little bit more sense and actually is more modestly worded. It goes something like this, while we do not know what the embryo is exactly, Uh, We know it must be treated with the same respect shown to a fully developed person, all the more because of its uh, peculiar vulnerability. It's tiny. It's weak. It can't defend itself. It doesn't have much going for it. Don't say it's not a human. Ask yourself what kind of a human being are you if you exploit its weakness. There are a lot of Christians in particular who believe that. What do you think when you see that? That, That's an embryo in the process of fertilization. I don't know if you can see the two circles in the middle, uh, DNA fusing together. A person? It is structured. It has form, but what form or structure or reality do you see? Or here it is, actually, eight cells. You can only see seven uh, from this photograph, but eight cells uh, roughly at this stage, of course, as I showed you earlier when it's tested for perhaps a genetic uh, disease. Or here it is um, at approximately 100 cells. Again, what do you see? That is what is taken apart to create embryonic stem cells. Possible fountain of life, fountain of youth maybe. Is it right to take that apart? Are you destroying one human life to save another? Or destroying something that is beautiful and got its own form, but not yet quite a human life. And so the counter-argument is, okay, granted, yeah, we don't know what the embryo is, but we do know enough to say with moral certainty that it is morally distinguishable from a, from a human being, and therefore, in view of the possibly enormous benefit to living patients, I mean, you, we don't know what, you know what the embryo is exactly, but we know what the Alzheimer's patient is, we know what the Parkinson's patient is, we know what the human sufferer is. Uh, possible, uh, possible benefit to these patients that may come from embryo research. It is therefore morally permissible to use some embryos at least for research under careful conditions. I think actually we need to begin to see the embryo in, in in a different context, and I would encourage all of us, in fact, to do this. To begin to see the embryo, not so much as an individual, but as a point of access for the technological modification of future human beings. Don't see it so much as an individual um, person, or not yet a person, but as a window for technology upon the human future. That's a more sobering picture, at least to me, when I Think of that embryo as now out in front of us, accessible, not only visible but manipulable by technology. With that thought in mind, let's return to the broader theme. And uh, our friend Gregory Stock, who I said earlier, is all for this technology. He says, as I see it, the coming opportunities in germinal choice technology far outweigh the risks. What is more, he says, a free market environment with real individual choice, modest oversight, you know, keep Washington in Washington, and robust mechanisms to learn quickly from mistakes, in other words, uh, trial lawyers, right, Um, is the best way Uh, both to protect us from potential abuses and to channel resources toward the goals we value." Well, exactly what are the goals we value? The uh, biggest challenge, he says, and I, I really agree with this statement, is that uh, we will face uh, from germline technology is not from its failure, since that would leave us where we are now. Success, he says, is what will tax our wisdom, because that would force us to come to grips with the medical, social, political, and philosophical implications of self-directed human evolution. It may prove to be humanity's best hope and its worst fear. Uh, w- wisdom... Um, I agree that, uh, that the arguments against these technologies are unlikely to prevent their development and use. I have to say, I personally find them sobering but not finely persuasive. Um, they make me pause, and in particular, the arguments against these sort of technologies make me wonder how we can avoid the dangers to which they point. Again, I don't think they're going to be persuasive enough in the public setting to keep us from moving forward. But even if you support the technologies gung-ho, I hope you will listen to the arguments against them because I think they do point to some wisdom and some concerns that we ought to have. But again, my, my point here now is that I don't think they are strong enough Uh, either intellectually assessed in their own terms or in terms of their grasp on the American public to prevent the use of the technologies. And so I agree that in time technology will be developed and therefore I agree with Stock that what we need is wisdom, but where does the wisdom come from? Do we have even a chance of matching the technology with its sophistication with the wisdom that it requires? My goal that I want to suggest then is not to ask how to prevent the technology, rather how to challenge and resist the negative values that so readily drive and define it and in particular, then, how to clarify, affirm, and then do the hard work of living up to the values that should constrain and guide it. That, that to me, is, is the goal uh, that lies ahead as, as I become an advocate for uh, the, the case that I want to make here tonight. In other words, we have to focus not simply on the technical, but also the moral and spiritual prerequisites. The technical prerequisites will be met by some very smart people. The moral and spiritual prerequisites must be met by the wider population, by all of us. The interplay of a free market and of limited government regulation, I think that's what we're going to see, but the interplay depends for its success uh, upon moral and spiritual capacities already out there in the population as the hidden reserve that guides collective behavior. In other words, if you want freedom, and most Americans want freedom, market uh, processes uh, with minimal government constraint. If you want the freedom, then you have to do the hard work of providing the necessary guidance, restraint, and moral integrity. I mean, if you want Washington to stay out of most of these decisions, and worry mostly about safety, about standards, about the the effectiveness of what's being offered, about exposing bogus claims, and things of that sort. If you want that kind of role only out of Washington, uh, if you don't want them telling you right and wrong, wisdom and folly, then you, you and I, have to come up with the moral and spiritual reserves that will guide it. The stakes are really pretty high. Uh, I, I don't think it's entirely hyperbole to say we're talking about the future of human evolution. I mean, have you ever pondered where we're going in the next hundred years? Or next thousand years? Or stretch it out as far as we've been here already as a distinct anatomically modern species? A quarter of a million years. What on earth are we likely to be on that scope of time? What is the future of our species? Already people are talking about a transhuman stage on the way to a posthuman era in which some of us, not all of us, but some of us will give rise to progeny that eventually will be distinct and incapable of breeding with the rest of the population. Will we get there? I, I don't know. Uh, that's the kind of scenario some people are talking about. Uh, that's the kind of stakes, though. I mean, I, I think that, that, that focuses the mind the right way, at the right level of intensity. And so the question we have to ask is, is, anybody running this? And it's capitalized to suggest that there might be some invisible hand. There might be some divine providence. Maybe. Uh, I, my particular view of God and of providence is not that there is this generous, benevolent hand that will keep us from our own mistakes. I, I don't believe that. Uh, are we in charge? Uh, who's we, uh, or is it running us? So I, I want to suggest, therefore, that as technology develops, as it surely will, that religion or spirituality become more and not less important. I mean, you've all seen the image, right, of the uh, of the uh, usually a Hollywood image of the doctor kind of standing at the door of the room in the hospital, and the poor patient uh, in the background, and the doctor's uh, she's 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 wringing her hands and saying, "Well, I guess all we can do now is pray." And the poor family, you know, understands what that means. There's no more technology to throw at the patient. Uh, uh, We we, we understand the sentiment, uh, but it's actually the opposite of what I want to suggest. It's precisely when you have the technology that you most need to pray. It's precisely when the technology works, as, as, as Stock himself says, that you most need wisdom. It's precisely in a technologically advanced age that you most need the, uh, the religious depth, the spiritual depth, and the moral wisdom that comes with it. And most of all, I'm concerned that we're going to face a, uh, a, a losing campaign here, that the, it's the advance of the technology itself that will undermine the very values that are needed to guide the technology that it will seduce us out of holding the values that are needed to guide it and constrain it. In other words, the technology itself, by its very success, will bring about in the wider population, not, not among the experts, not among the scientists, but the wider population, and uh, heightened expectations of technologies of control. Wow, this stuff really works. Isn't it great? Look what it can do for me. Look what wonderful things, everything that it can do for me. But it will also bring unchecked reductionism, objectification, and commodification. Oh, it solved my problem. I guess I really am genes or biochemicals or uh, molecules. Uh, That it will bring about unconstrained competition uh, among the enhanced And social and economic uh, discrimination of those who are left behind as merely normal. We already begin to see that in the use of psychopharmacology, for instance uh, Ritalin among children, or read some of the stories Peter Kramer tells in listening to Prozac. So what we need, I believe, is to resist the values that so readily define and drive the culture that surrounds and feeds biotechnology. So I want to plead with you to nourish in yourself and in others modest expectations of the limited scope of the success of this technology and specifically resistance to the ideologies of reductionism and objectification and commodification and avoidance of competitive motivation and that I think is going to be the hardest of all. The danger is that we human beings will be overly confident, overly trusting, and overly dependent upon our own technology to solve our deepest problems and address our deepest longings. Biotechnology seems to feed this. I mean, every promise. And it seems to feed on it. You believe the promise, send us your money. You know, venture capital, invest in the market, gotta have it. Um, Public funding, NIH stuff. I mean, the promise is made to the poor U.S. Congress. About what this is going to do or that's going to do. I mean, I I, I don't want that to be construed as against the investment, but you think of the rhetoric that drives the whole field. In so doing, I think this vicious game here of overrating what the technology can do and saying we have control of life uh, undermines the values that we most urgently need. I mean, will we in the future, with our growing capacity to fix human beings, become less tolerant of those who are impaired? I mean, al- already there's evidence that there's profound fear of this entire field among those who are labeled one way or another as having a disability or some form of impairment. Will, we, uh, will our growing reliance on technology make us less aware of our own fragility and vulnerability, and therefore less open to help from others or from beyond? I mean, part of being human is to be open to help. And most of us, maybe, it, maybe, it's, maybe it's just on the X chromosome, but most of us, uh, guys in particular, in other words, have trouble accepting help um, from beyond. Uh, will it make us more self-absorbed, self-secured, and disengaged from the needs of others, more willing to fix the problem than to live with the person, in other words? So we need to ratchet down the expectations and to have modest ones, that tech, biotechnology cannot control life or solve all our problems, and avoid the tendency that is already really well developed to biologize or medicalize our problems, whether they are personal problems, uh, ranging from every form of human behavior to social problems such as crime. Let's medicalize it. Let's figure out what makes criminals criminal, and let's treat them. I mean, right now there's a great deal of interest. Um, depended upon uh, largely bogus understandings but a great deal of interest in, in doing that. The modesty that I'm suggesting, I believe, is nourished, in fact, by religious faith and by spiritual awareness that our deepest human needs are not biological, or, you know, the great saying, uh, we don't live by bread alone. Our deepest human needs are not biological, but spiritual and moral, and no amount of biological control, as wonderful as it might be in treating real biological needs, will address the deepest needs. Modest expectations, the second one that I want to advocate is to avoid reductionism, objectification, and commodification. Um, If it's believed, if uh, reductionism, for instance, is believed, it only heightens our expectations. I mean, if you believe you're nothing but genes, if you believe you're nothing but biochemicals, and somebody says, hey, we'll swap them out, you're going to think, I'll really be changed. It'll solve my problems. and In other words, reductionism fuels um, uh, heightened expectations. This is particularly true, I think, in the parent-child relationship, and it leads there, perhaps, uh, as nowhere else, to a distinction between the designer, the parent of the future, 10, 20, 30 years out, and the designed, the child of the future, the engineer and the engineered, subject and object or even buyer and purchase. Look, kid, we spent a lot of money enhancing your conception. And you're still, (laughs) right? Um, The risk, particularly, of of Stock's view is that uh, we'll have new human artificial chromosomes with each generation that will update the software for each unit. Um, Theoretically intriguing, but uh, how reductionist to think of a human up, uh, an upgraded version of a human being with each generation and how much committed to commodification because the new upgrade is always going to cost more than the last, right? Again, take a, take a lesson from Microsoft. Model number and cost factor will always be in view. I mean, do we really want to go down that road Or is it possible, again, the the really important question for us tonight, is it possible for us to go down this road at all technologically without these values uh, surrounding it? Is it possible, in other words, to identify and resist and replace these values, to resist reductionism? First of all, to resist it intellectually and to make the argument that we are more than genes, more than chemicals. I mean, that's a tough argument to make. But it's an argument that I think must be made, that we have a... Uh, that human beings are more than this. And I think we resist it most effectively through our own action. I mean, the challenge is very simple. Don't argue with a reductionist. Just demonstrate that they're wrong. Be a person with moral values and spiritual vision that obviously transcends your, disease, uh, your genes or your selfish interests or your biochemistry and thereby improve, uh, prove reductionism wrong. I mean, every act of uh, um, uncaused generosity or kindness or altruism essentially proves reductionism wrong. Uh, Let's simply do that. Opposite of commodification is to cultivate among ourselves uh, acceptance of the other, particularly future children or grandchildren, as irreducibly personal, mysterious, hidden, and possessing limitless spiritual depth, not ever as an object to buy or control. And again, that view is deeply nourished by religious and spiritual uh, views that the dignity and worth of every human being is grounded in a relationship with God or with ultimate reality, not in physical achievement or genetic perfection. Uh, moving finally to avoiding competitive motivation. I think this is the hardest, and I think Appleyard nails the reason. People in general are powerfully driven to gain a competitive advantage for their children, or at least to ensure that they will, are, are not at a competitive disadvantage. So, if offered the choice, therefore, they will find it difficult, probably impossible, not to accept technological methods of improvement. But, of course, what would constitute improvement? as I look at this I think this really is going to be the hardest point and I don't know that we have um, the resources as a society to resist the competitiveness of culture when it comes to thinking about our children and what it takes for them to succeed and indeed uh, emerge on top in a competitive world. So the prediction is that even parents who don't want this stuff will feel compelled to go along. They'll ask themselves what is a perfect baby? Uh, What is the best child money can buy? Most intelligent, most athletic, attractive, the right gender, the right height, the right skin color. Uh, or will there be parents who say, well, if I could, I would prefer to have the kindest, the most generous, most loving child. I doubt it. Most people will, in fact, pick what they think is the most competitive to allow their child to to end up on top in the society of the future. Again, I think this is a really powerful and dangerous incentive that will um, corrupt uh, the, the, the development of the field. Opposite of competitive motivation is to cultivate as much as we possibly can, you know, starting here, starting now. Resistance to cultural fads that define perfection, in skin color, in face shape, in other uh, f- features of our anatomy that are possibly alterable by these scientific fields. And then, more importantly, to nourish in us the desire to succeed or for you and your children and grandchildren to succeed in kindness, goodness, generosity, in all these matters of the human spirit and not in their opposite. I mean, the, you know, the, the influences around them are going to sell the other forms of success. Nourish in yourself and in your children, your progeny, the desire to succeed in these more important, more basic, more human uh, traits. This, I believe, is sustained by religious trust in the goodness of the Creator. Simply being able to trust that an, a child not tweaked for a competitive environment will, in fact, make it in the world that's going to require a larger measure of trust than most people have and I don't know anything that can sustain it except this sort of trust in the goodness of creator goodness of creation and therefore being relieved of personal anxiety. Quickly now in summary five strategies for human thriving in the age of human transformation let's bring the discussion out into the focus and whatever they do in Washington I hope they don't drive it abroad or underground I hope despite all indications that, in fact, we will have public funding that will lead to public review and therefore broad, vigorous public debate, the kind of discussion we're having tonight. Secondly, that we will challenge the religious communities to stop the hyper-focus on the embryo and to join us in the task of creating the kind of spiritual and moral reserves uh, that are uh, needed to sustain us in the future. Third, to Reconnect the technological with the spiritual. Again, don't pray when you don't have the technology. Pray especially when you have it. As we grow in technological power, grow in spiritual depth. And in fact, not simply grow as if those are separate parts of your identity. You know, as if you're an engineer over here or maybe worried about designing your offspring and then, oh, over here there's this private spiritual part. Fuse the two so that the values flood over and shape the way in which you understand and use the technology. Cultivate the new virtues that I've already tried to suggest tonight, the new virtues that are needed in an age of human technological self-modification. And then finally, undertake in yourself your own personal and spiritual moral growth. Undertake it seriously, moving toward reflective depth in your own self about the values that define you. Thank you all very much.